0: mm <laughs> That's chirpybirdinc.com. Well, welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, uh, and we get excited here about amplifying and celebrating the contributions of women in the healthcare and health IT space. Uh, we talk about healthcare like a 30,000 piece puzzle. It is a very complicated place to live and work, and each of us kind of holds a piece of that puzzle. So, I'd like to welcome another guest to our show, Rodina. I'll give you a minute to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the piece of the healthcare puzzle that you get to hold on to.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. This is a privilege and an honor. Um, So I have been in healthcare for the last 15 years, and my primary focus has been on patient access. It started out initially with just managing provider schedules, then it turned into the call center world, centralization, and now it's evolved to the digital front door. Um, Right now in my current role, I'm a director for patient access and technology at Tegria. And we're all about humanizing healthcare for our patient population.
0: Okay, so what does that mean exactly?
1: So it means that when I'm designing a process or implementing technology, I'm looking at the plight of the patient, how hard they have to struggle to get in the front door. I also look at the physician, I look at the care team, the nursing team, and how hard they're struggling to facilitate care. I listen to the interactions that people have either through voice and I track or trend the ones that they have on chat or via virtual or digital mediums and I assess the impediments um, and then I design around them. So I think of all of their perspectives when I'm coming up with an approach or a paradigm shift to help improve um, the state of the healthcare access for the entire population. So
0: when we're talking about the entire population, is it indeed the entire population? Are you guys working in specific regions or is it nationwide? What's
1: So it's nationwide. Um, we also have some um, work in Europe. Okay. In a past life, I worked in the Arab world in Abu Dhabi. Um, I'm in a doctoral program right now and there's a lot of emphasis on equity. So it is my goal to go out and help deliver care in like Belize or in Lebanon or in areas that are really suffering. So um, yeah, when I do talk about the entire population, I think about equity and I do think well, about uh, That global. makes me
0: happy. So I live in Mexico.
1: Do you? Yeah,
0: and so I think that um, the access to health there is very different, the experience is very different than it is in the US. And so can you can you speak a little, a little bit about like, how different is it in a place like, you know, uh, Abu Dhabi or anywhere else
1: that you've experienced? Sure, so um, in Abu Dhabi, they essentially were coming to the United States for most of their healthcare, and they were looking to us as the healthcare experts. Um, we did a lot of partnerships with them, and um, there was a plan called emiratization where we helped develop their, um, their healthcare system from the ground up. We trained a lot of their physicians or we recruited a lot of physicians that were very, very senior in their subspecialized areas and we put them in place so that way Abu Dhabi or Qatar could be hubs to provide healthcare to the Arab world so that they didn't have to travel halfway across the world to get care. Is that what was the the theme? That's what a lot of people
0: would do, really?
1: Like yeah. general population if they needed general care. General population would work with their embassies and they were still, they Holy were funneled cow. out to different organizations based off of their rankings in either US News and World Report uh-huh. or relationships. So it still happens today. There are certain countries that are really affiliated with organizations and that's how they, Well, I mean, it's also
0: like the medical tourism, is that part of it? I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that leave the country to go to other countries to get medical care, but of course it works both ways, It does work both ways. So
1: (laughs) in in some ways it was medical tourism, Okay. but we were creating an equity. Understood. by, By garnering international market share here in the United States when we could help uplift countries that really wanted to put in the infrastructure to develop a healthcare system. And to serve their entire population—that's so important. Well, just infrastructure in particular Absolutely. is just like
0: makes so much difference. So, can you tell me a little bit more about your work at Tegria?
1: Yes. Um, so, right now, I think we are trying to really um, commission some research and make some sound business decisions and be anticipatory as healthcare leaders to kind of set the tone and the trend for healthcare. We want to identify the preferable future okay. for what the patient experience should be like, the provider experience, and how to help uplift these organizations. So healthcare is really, really behind in terms of tech, digitization, um, and essentially just self-service. So my charge is to help eliminate those barriers to the front door. We recently did um, a poll called the Harris Poll. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, barely. Please tell me about it. So. I mean, it was very rich in information, but I think the thing that struck me the most was the emphasis on convenience. Patients, seven out of 10, would say that they'd be willing to switch providers if the new provider offered them better access or better ways to schedule an appointment. So I think that patients are just so frustrated with how cumbersome it is yeah. to coordinate care and the fact that there isn't multidisciplinary care. Everything is so fragmented. And when in, you're in a vulnerable state, it's, I mean, it's incredibly difficult and overwhelming to think about how much you have to struggle. It's like a full-time job. Sure, yeah,
0: when you you said earlier about thinking about anticipa- being anticipatory, so when you think about like the future state of how you would like it to be, yeah. can you help paint that picture?
1: Yeah, so this is very conceptual, and I'm just learning to Good. be visioneering. Um, but essentially, if, if I were trekking, like if I had infinite resources. Oh, I love this question. Yes. If you have time,
0: money, resources,
1: or an issue, what would you do? So I, I would, first of all, I'd focus on equity, uh-huh. like we mentioned, but I'd also make it frictionless, meaning that I would want multidisciplinary care teams to focus on me as a patient. I would want to utilize technology to identify what my issues are. I want some sort of like minimal triaging that would then alert me that I needed to be seen either in person or virtually with a care team. I want to be able to use my wearables or anything that's connected to provide some information about what's happening. So that way they can have tracking and data as they're assessing my health status and outcomes. I'd like to meet with a team that understands me as a human and my lifestyle and for them to collectively come up with a treatment plan and for them to have active monitoring Um, But I also understand that physicians have it rough, you know, they have fatigue, malaise, burnout, and now with this new technology, it's incredibly invasive. Mm -hmm. So I want to make the world a better place for them as well, where we curate the data, we curate the technology, and it's a little bit more, I guess, regulated for them in terms of how often we bombard them and communicate with them but i think if we had had more comprehensive care yeah. i don't know that this would be such a need for us to constantly ping them and say look at me look at me you know <laughs> well it brings up an interesting question around
0: how we gather that data so if 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 a care team knew everything about you and what it, could anticipate your needs before mm-hmm. you needed them you know how would you how would you guess that they would get that information? Would it be from a wearable? Would it be from a series of wearables? And then what would your conversation around privacy? Like I kind of think, I'm like, oh, how much do I want somebody to have, a, how much access do I want them to have to, to, to personal me? things in me?
1: Yeah. So it depends. Um, I think it depends on what I'm being seen for. Uh-huh. There are some things that are really invasive. Um, and there are some things that affect mental health and well-being, and they're all interconnected. So. To some extent, um, I have a smart home, mm-hmm. so like everything is connected, and it took me a while to adjust to that. But I've I've relinquished that thought about my own privacy, I guess. Okay. With my care team. Okay. I come from a family of clinicians, so I think. Well, then it's
0: it'll be an interesting conversation because I come from a dumb home, and I, <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm just like Siri's not invited into my home. Oh. Alexa's not invited into my home. I'm um, like or my phone or anything like that but it but I've thought about it. Yeah. So what it, what is the you know the theory versus the practice of actually implementing that into your home?
1: Yeah, it's I mean the theory is everything's interconnected. Um all of my systems are interconnected. I have visibility into everything. I have control over everything. Um, there's
0: something like, for like, like to what level of detail? Like, there's smart refrigerators or whatever that will tell you, like, you know what? You need to be more hydrated. Yeah. You get a ding of like, uh, it's time to drink more water. <laughs> That's is next it- on my list. Okay,
1: <laughs> But I have a smart oven, essentially, okay. that tells me that, oh, your beef wellington is like at 325. Tell Do you want d- to go five more degrees? Okay. Is that your preference? Um, or I can turn on my washing machine right. remotely. I, I can turn on and turn off lights. I can turn on security systems. Um, my heating, cooling is all... Yeah. I have um, interactive speakers, my children. Like, how much
0: are you talking to your house? That's my, like, there's people that um, you go in their house and they're like, okay, play the music or tell me the weather or.
1: That's us. Or, you know that. That's you? Okay. My five year old daughter talks to our house. Okay. And goes to a hotel and is shocked that Alexa is not present and Google cannot answer her math questions. Oh my gosh, it's going to be so interesting yeah. to see over time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, It was kind of a forced adoption. My husband is extremely into tech, so he put everything in place. But I had a really hard time initially with it. I'm like, you don't have my tacit consent to do this. Right. (laughs) I need, I need adoption. Like, you need to study (laughs) my willingness and desire to do this. And so, like, are
0: are you laying in bed and like, okay, turn the lights out. Yes. Okay. Turn on my TV. Okay. Play my show. Okay. Cue this I have a little remote control that turns an o- on and off lights but there's only four and they have to be like plugged into a certain. So it's not that smart. But it's yeah. not that dumb either. But at least I can turn it on and yeah. off from bed.
1: Yeah. No, I can do colors. Okay. I can do strobes. Oh. Yeah.
0: Do you have like party time where you're just like, yeah. oh, it's time to have fiesta. Yeah. Or like, okay.
1: Yeah. When we celebrate certain holidays, we color code the lights. Oh, I love that. Make it green, you know. Okay. So
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thanks. Uh huh. Okay,
1: but the same can be applied to healthcare, (laughs) of course. So, um, I think it's just with every technology deployment, you have to understand the preferences of your customer, and there are some um, certified adoption instruments that are in place that are used for technology, like the TAM or the U two AT. Oh, you're
0: gonna have to tell me more about those, and if you want to.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I, I'm. Essentially, they assess risk, they assess willingness, they assess um, social influence, and then desirability to use it. Okay. And intention to use it. Right. So, I think before you deploy anything, before it becomes ubiquitous, you have to put those in place to uh, to like, get the personas of the individuals that are going to be utilizing the tech. Right. And to gauge the viability of the process and the technology that you want to put in place. So I feel like that's a very great conversation to have
0: because there's certain also kind of calling back to infrastructure and access whereas like certain people don't have access to the same technology like there's digital redlining where you know like certain counties don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have broadband internet or you know don't have the data plan that is uh, capable of having a, a telehealth visit right so when we are talking about patient access can you talk about like how we would kind of go from people that have different levels of either ability or capacity and comfort level?
1: Yeah. So I think as a part of population health, if I had an infinite supply, I would provide broadband Mm -hmm. connectivity to 5G, and I would provide a mobile device. Um, I think everybody can communicate through SMS, Yeah. and I think that's the first layer. You also have voice. Voice is never going away we're always going to have some sort of call center that's going to allow someone to talk. Especially if you um, slice the data and look at it by age demographic, you still have a large subset that's not necessarily interested in doing anything mm-hmm. self-service or connecting. My dad is like that. Um, so those, those are always going to be present and we need to still affirm those mediums to make sure that we can reach everyone where they are. Yeah, I fully subscribe to that as yeah. well.
0: Okay, back to Tegria. Sorry back for to the Tegria. little yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> well, so what do you get excited about?
1: Yeah, and I actually, get excited
0: about. and also, can you tell me more about the survey that you were talking about? Like, yeah. what were the questions that you actually asked on that survey and why were the results so, like, impactful for your work?
1: So I think um, it's a survey where we're using a Likert scale. You know, how important is this to you? Uh-huh. So I think we were trying to assess by gender, by age, by socioeconomic standard, and by race? The willingness to stay loyal to your provider, or what were the key motivators for you to establish care with somebody else? Okay. Um, and so we had we had a lot of important data. So I think four out of five Americans were saying that they wanted online scheduling. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the age group from like 18 to 55, which is relevant, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, we were looking at um, loyalty to a provider and perceived value of care in comparison to convenience. So, and what
0: is what so what makes somebody loyal to their provider? Did they did they answer that question or like what what was the thing that would invite them or like encourage so think,
1: them to change? Here's the shocker: loyalty is antiquated. Okay. Um, so loyalty was not a resounding measure on this survey. It was truly all about convenience. Really? Okay. And I think for the younger population, that was very true for the older population, it was that connection with the provider and they were afraid to leave their provider. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's, it's um, kind of showing the trends that are to come as the population continues to evolve from patients to consumers, where they are primarily focused on digital interaction um, for things like appointment scheduling, visibility into their electronic medical record, communication with providers, paying bills, okay, and then visibility into their financial responsibility for healthcare services. Big time. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's the that's the majority. That's the those key points from. That, and that makes a lot of
0: sense because a lot of times I think we're engaging with um, a health system and you may not see the same provider over and over and over again, That's you right. know? So um, you may not have that like, rel- one-on-one relationship with an individual doctor.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's true. Like I've seen that in a primary care setting. So I've done a lot of care path mapping and working with practice management. Um, In primary care, it is about the touch point with the provider, but their patient panels are getting so big. So some of them can't see their patients all the time, and we have to use an extension of the Mm -hmm. care team. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't seen my primary care provider in years. Years. I
0: I would say the same. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think the things that we value is it is it Timely appointments. So we saw that in the Harris poll that people want to be seen sometimes immediately mm-hmm. for their concerns or they want an appointment That's convenient for them. So this date and this time works for me because I'm a mother and I'm a professional and I have two young children And this is a time for me. Mm-hmm. Other people really want that touch point and that connection, but as the population is changing it, there's more emphasis on convenience and timely access. Um, I think it reaffirms my work, Like it, it, just, it re-inspires me because um, organizations don't want to invest in access, they just they worry about it and they think the cost, the cost, the cost. But if you don't invest in access, you're going to lose market share and patients are going to go elsewhere.
0: Yeah, and then if either they're going elsewhere or an issue or condition is getting worse instead of getting treated, and then it ends up being more costly down the road. That's
1: right. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's um, prohibitive to preventative care mm-hmm. and value-based care. Mm-hmm. So can we talk a little bit more about you, Regina, yes. I would love to know a little bit
0: more about your journey and like how, okay. you, how you found your way to your current position. Like, did, did 10-year-old you have any idea that this is what you would do for a living?
1: Ten-year-old me was growing up in the Lebanese Civil War, so I really, um, I wanted to be a soldier when I was young because that's what I saw around me. Okay, so focused on war. How Um, can we talk about that? Sure. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, scary. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. It was very similar. Okay. And that's how I
0: grew up. And so, did you think that you were having to arm yourself? Does that mean, like, of course, food, safety, shelter? You know, and maybe protection. Yes. were.
1: Food safety, shelter, access to water, access yeah. to electricity, shortages, um, all the time. So my family moved to the United States because we wanted to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I really was as an immigrant. I was trying to figure out like, how do I fit into the United States? How do I assimilate and adjust to culture? How old were you when you guys when you came over? Almost 11 years old. Okay. So, oh, so that was an important time. Yes, it okay. was. Yes, it was. And I think, um, you know, I had a, I had a really tough time. We were well off in Lebanon, as well as you could be, in the midst of a civil war. And when I came here, we lost everything. So um, we lived in poverty and struggled, and often didn't have access to care. And what?
0: Where did you land? What state were you in? Cleveland, okay. Ohio. Okay. So it's very different. Weather was very different.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was really, really different. I, I had never seen snow before. Okay. So I think the first time that it snowed, I ran outside bare feet. And I'm like, wow, this is wonderful. And then <laughs> I ran realizing. right back in yeah. the <laughs> Not <end. laughs> um, But no, I mean, it definitely was an adjustment, but I, I just I think I became very aware at a young age that there are a lot of inequities um, and growing up in a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. I very much had feminist tendencies, and I think that's really, I think those are like the biggest things that formed my identity. But is that
0: something that came from Lebanon? Like, is it, was, is it less patriarchal over there? Oh no, or it was, was more, patriar- more over patriarchal over there. More patriarchal over there, yeah, so. So, okay. so uh, tell me more about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I think as a girl I was always told you're going to get married, yeah. and you can't, and um, you have to be obedient and pliant. Okay. And just don't question too much.
0: And then what point did that change? Or what point did you realize that that wasn't something that you had to?
1: I think from follow? day one. Okay. So I, I've always bucked convention. Okay. Um, and so when, when I went to college, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was a French major, um, very free spirited, and um, I was still in Cleveland. But I knew I wanted to do something that had meaning, something that had impact. Then when I went to grad school, um, I was sort of thinking about healthcare. Um, I was also thinking about international business. Okay. And then um, I got hired into the Cleveland Clinic. And it just kind of really changed my perspective. I started working in the epilepsy center and I really connected with that patient population and I felt very invested in their outcomes. Um, and then I transitioned to process improvement, and it was extremely empowering. I felt like I had a place in the world because I was actually making a difference in people's yeah. lives Yeah. when I was improving access, or I was improving clinical outcomes.
0: If you don't mind, can I ask you about uh, Civil War and, like, access to health care in that time? Is that something that do you think had an impact on you, whether, like, if somebody got hurt, did they ha- did they have the access to the care that they needed? What, like, how would have... So no, and maybe that's a really tough question. Yeah,
1: we didn't. Uh, Okay. So oftentimes we had to stay home, and we weren't allowed to go out on the streets because of so much shelling. And
0: I would imagine that has like changes your behavior in so much ways. You're obviously not going to go ride your bike. You're going to try to do something that like keep you safe, right? Like not any sort of activity that if you could twist an ankle or break an arm or like there's extra risk associated with
1: even minor injuries. Right, right. Right. So I mean, doctors came to your home, but you had to have a personal connection to the physician and they had to be a family friend. So we were lucky in that way, but we didn't have access to specialty care. Okay. So um, I think it was mostly primary care, general practitioners who came in and did their best with the limited resources that they have. Okay. So imaging was scant. Blood work, you were lucky if you made it out and went to the lab and got your blood work done. And I think a lot of people in Lebanon now, with the collapse of the economic system, are still facing that. I have family members who are diabetic who don't even have testing strips or don't have access to insulin. So, I mean, I think about the inequity all the time. Mm -hmm. I think about the oppression of not being able to have health and Mm -hmm. I want to do something about it. I am motivated every day to get up and fight to do something about it.
0: Well, you are a soldier in your (laughs) own
1: right. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess my next question would be, given what you know and where you have been, if you had advice for somebody who was starting their journey, what would you share with them?
1: Your voice is important. And so although you're a neophyte, and you're surrounded by senior members within the organization, Mm -hmm. fight to be heard. You have a place at the table and you have every right to contribute.
0: Yeah, you know, that's come up recently of just understanding, especially if you are different from, you know, uh, the decision makers, for example, um, I think it's even more important that your voice is heard mm-hmm. because you are likely holding on to a perspective and insight that they may not even know that they don't know.
1: That's right. right? That's mm-hmm. right. There's diversity of thought and it always makes for such a richer experience. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much thank for you. taking the
0: time to talk with me today and just joining us on this show. So if somebody wants to follow you or get in touch with uh, your organization, where would you point them?
1: LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Please follow me on LinkedIn, and please find me at um, tegria.com. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Rodina. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. And thank you for listening. My name,
0: again, is Joy Rios. You've been listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. You can find us online at hitlikeagirlpod.com or any of our social handles at hitlikeagirlpod. Thank you. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network.